Welcome to the Accord Research Alliance podcast, where we talk with innovators who are committed to measuring what matters in Christ-centered relief, development, and advocacy. My name is Rodney Green, Monitoring, Evaluation, and Listening Specialist at Compassion International, and one of the hosts of this podcast. Today, I share with you a recent conversation I had with Dr. Jamie Atten, Founder and Executive Director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, and author of the excellent book, A Walking Disaster, What Surviving Katrina and Cancer Taught Me About Faith and Resilience, available wherever fine books are sold. Jamie and I discussed the topic of measuring or just having a better awareness of faith and resilience journeys, both within ourselves and in communities, within situations such as chronic generational trauma, of racial injustice, or the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope you enjoy our conversation and find it helpful. Jamie, at the Accord Research Alliance, we have benefited greatly by your leadership and the work of HDI, and it's great to finally have you as a guest on the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. Before we jump into the topic for today, can you give us a brief introduction to yourself and the Humanitarian Disaster Institute? Sure, I'd be glad to. So I'm actually a psychologist by training. And the way that I first got into doing disaster work was that I had moved to South Mississippi just six days before Hurricane Katrina hit. And I was able to see shortly after about the important role that local churches and faith-based organizations play in responding to disasters. And also saw that they were, in many ways, some of the last ones to still be there that were responding over the long term. And though the churches did such incredible work, as well as so many faith-based organizations, I also noticed that there wasn't a place that churches could go for both theologically sound and for scientifically sound resources. And so that's really where the vision for HDI came out of. And so I was able to launch, um, after five years in Mississippi, moved to Wheaton College and launched the Humanitarian Disaster Institute. And we're the first faith-based academic disaster research center here in the States. And our mission is to help the church prepare and care in a disaster-filled world. And we do more than just natural disasters, but also are doing a number of studies. In fact, we just had a study come out this morning in the Journal of Traumatic Stress looking at conflict and resource loss uh, in Eastern Congo. We also do a lot of research right now on the impact of humility on humanitarian aid leadership and also on faith and resilience issues. Excellent. Thank you for that. And, you know, we have quite a large discussion that we want to go into today. And so, you know, we want to be able to unpack at least a little bit more about, you know, what does faith and resilience journeys look like? And how can we be more aware of that, both within ourselves and in the communities where we might be working? And and right now, you know, what's on a lot of our minds is, you know, the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which has really impacted the whole world in, di- in different ways. And also the, the real kind of generational trauma that we're seeing surface uh, that's been present in the United States really since the foundation of the nation in regards to racial injustice. And so, you know, we maybe want to talk about a few of those things as well, maybe as examples that, that we yeah, you know, as, as they might be a forefront in our minds. But maybe we could start with kind of what's going on internally within us. Um, and, 
before we kind of look at what's going out in, in the wider community. So maybe you could share a little bit about what you've learned in your own personal journey or in your work uh, that you could kind of share with us. Well, you know, we just published a paper uh, probably a handful of months ago or so in Psychological Trauma, one of the American Psychological Association journals. And I led a team in on a paper where we reviewed all the empirical research that looked at religion and spirituality and disaster mental health. And so going through back, you know, 44 years of research, one of the things that we found is a kind of a key theme that we've also seen in just across the number of HDI studies that we've done over the last nine years is that it's not just how religious a person is that predicts resilience, but what really seems to matter is about how one engages their faith in times of adversity that seems to be the best predictor of resilience. So for example, Rodney, maybe both you and I go through the same disaster. We both lose our homes. We both felt like our lives were threatened, but you engage your faith in such a way that you find comfort in God and that you view God in a more positive light that you know maybe you are really now focused on feeling like you have a greater sense of purpose, for example. Whereas even though our um, religiosity is the same and our disaster experience is the same, perhaps I engage mine in a way that causes more religious strain, where I might end up viewing God as being more punitive or feeling as though God was punishing me for, you know, maybe even sent the disaster because of some, you know, horrible sin that I've not shared before with anybody else. And so we know that the person um, in that latter uh, example there is going to struggle much more significantly. Another interesting piece of that engagement aspect is that it's also about how does it help us gain resources to be able to navigate these difficult times. You know, so for instance, if you are a minority religious person in a community that's hit by disaster, you may actually struggle more because you may not get the same access to some of the same resources that are available to those in the majority. And then one of the final kind of big takeaways that we've seen in our research is that it has a lot to do also with how we make meaning. And so looking at how do these events uh, rupture the way that we thought we knew and understood the world, and then how do we go about starting to integrate these sometimes even horrific experiences into our views of God? And what we've seen is that individuals, when there's that discrepancy in the meaning making, that it starts to cause the spiritual struggle. And the greater the gap between what somebody thought that they knew about God and what they're experiencing about God. So my colleague, Dr. Ward Davis at HDI and Wheaton talks about it in terms of kind of head knowledge and heart knowledge, that the bigger the discrepancy typically is where that rub comes in and is what starts to lead to some of those negative psychological mental health outcomes. That's right. So thanks for, for sharing that. I mean, one of the, the things that kind of strikes me about that is, is the meaning making kind of portion that you mentioned, which was the kind of way that people interpret God's role in the suffering that they might be facing um, that, you know, more punitive potentially or, or more um, comforting. I liked that that language was helpful. So like the more punitive in the sense that, you know, potentially God is unhappy with me and that might be why I'm experiencing these things or the more comforting side, uh, you know, potentially that God is um, not punishing me, that God loves me and that is with me in this. Um, this reminds me of a quote from your book, if you don't mind me uh, reading it back here, uh, that, that kind of, I think, brings this point really well together. You wrote in your book here that kind of 
as you were facing some, you know, some really difficult uh, things in your life um, with cancer treatment, that after meditating on the life and the death of Christ, that you write in a fresh way, I understood in my deep places that Christ had gone before me and could relate to my pain. In a very palpable and visceral sense, I was no longer alone. And I was keenly aware that the peace I felt was not contingent on the outcome of my battle. Whether I lived or died, I was loved. And that was something cancer could not take from me. I personally, I find that to be a really powerful uh, story, testimony to share. Um, maybe could, could you talk a little bit about that a little bit more? Yeah. And, and actually just hearing you read that back kind of hit me actually. So, uh, cause I just finished celebrating my sixth year, uh, since my last chemo treat uh, chemotherapy treatment. And so just hearing that all of a sudden felt like, Oh, right back there again for just a moment. But that was a really powerful moment for me of just recognizing that, um, in many ways it challenged my thoughts on what I thought I knew about resilience that, you know, I've spent my career, so all, all said, you know, it would be about 15 years now studying resilience issues around the globe. And most often we tend to talk about resilience in terms of like adapting to a challenge or our ability to, you know, even kind of like a beach ball underwater to bounce back, right? But when I was going through cancer, what I realized was that there wasn't a bouncing back happening for me. You know, so I, I was very fortunate that after a year of just really intense treatment was found not to have any more evidence of disease and continue to be cancer free. So grateful for that. But it wasn't that I just finished treatments and life went back to normal. You know, it was a, it was close to a year before I even started kind of feeling like myself or even in terms of just my thinking being clear because of all the medications I had been on. And so it was a really slow kind of difficult grind and rebound. And then at the same time, I actually lost a couple of friends and colleagues that were actually affiliated with Wheaton College that had very similar cancers as I had. And their bodies didn't give them the opportunity to bounce back in the way that, you know, I had. But they were still resilient. But the definitions of how we talk about resilience just seemed to be kind of failing me. And so I ended up taking a year or so after and kind of when I was on a quest a bit of trying to understand what was this that I saw not only in my own experience play out, but that I saw in those that I lost and also in the lives of so many other cancer patients and disaster survivors that I've worked with over the years. And what I finally came to realize that what I was noticing wasn't just resilience, but it was something different. And that it, when I started looking into scripture, what really jumped out to me was the idea of the, the fruits of the spirit where it talked about endurance and throughout scripture, the example of the virtue of spiritual fortitude and, you know, spiritual fortitude is more of a definition of resilience that has kind of a longer term perspective that it recognizes that we don't always just bounce back. And from some of the chronic problems or thinking about, you know, some of the individuals and uh, communities that the NGOs a part of Accord work with, some people may always be facing certain challenges in their life. And so it really provides us kind of more of an endurance perspective about um, 
being able to find meaning and still doing good, even in the face of adversity. And so that was a really big shift for me. And so actually we just published a scale about six months ago on spiritual fortitude. So it's the SF nine and that's in the journal of psychological trauma. And in it, we look at uh, spiritual enterprise, spiritual endurance, and also look at redemptive purpose. And so those are kind of the three subscales that we found. And the other part that really stood out to us as well when we were working on the scale development was that statistically it does stand apart and um, is different than resilience and is different than grit. You know, so it has kind of a unique place. So we need all of those, right? That we need resilience, we need grit, we need community resilience. But I think especially in times of more long-term struggles, including things like COVID-19, we also need fortitude. Wow. Yeah. That, thanks for sharing that. That's um, to have a scale that's available. Um, that, that's really helpful as well. I, have you been able to see that kind of resonate in a sense, like if you were to look at the scale from your own kind of entering it for yourself versus um, also seeing how it plays out uh, in communities. Could you talk a little bit more about, about that and kind of, your experience with with the scale and and that in those senses mm -hmm. you know i kind of i knew i was onto something um actually before i even knew exactly what it was right you know so when i first started sharing some about my experience you know i talked about this idea that you know resilience is important but that i'd gone through this experience that i didn't bounce back that it was this long-term recovery process and just started noticing, like having people come up afterwards and saying, I have felt the same way, but also I felt myself as well as I would hear from others talking about that sometimes they felt guilty or maybe it was a sign that they didn't have enough faith that they had not bounced back right away. And so as we've been able to really develop the scale, start to develop the language and some of the theory around it, starting to realize that in many ways it gives an alternative narrative to communities that do go through these obstacles that there isn't going to be the immediate bouncing back from a new way of talking and thinking about it and also have found that it's been useful because it provides a different way of measuring success in terms of both an individual and community level that knowing that it's okay if sometimes this is more of a marathon than a sprint but if you don't know that it's a marathon you're going to take off sprinting and you're going to be exhausted and then feel like a failure Right. So if you know it's a marathon, even though, you know, it's going to be hard that you can prepare differently and start to cope differently so that you can actually finish the race. So I think one of the biggest takeaways that I've heard from communities um, that we've used this with most recently has been that it's helped them realize that to finish well, like if we look into scripture, you know, it doesn't say you finish the race first, good and faithful servant. It's that you finish the race. And sometimes we need a reminder of that. Right. So thinking about kind of uh, the current moment and the, the struggle for anti-racism in the United States, how do you interpret kind of the, the current moment and uh, with this kind of lens of spiritual fortitude and in kind of the, the march for justice and freedom? Uh, how, how would you interpret some of that with, with some of this as a, as a lens? You know, I think when I think about spiritual fortitude and about some of the current racial tensions that are happening, that 
none of these tensions are, are new, right? That this injustice has been around um, since the founding of our country. And the current situation with COVID and then some of the current murders of innocent black men that those have really put the spotlight on that injustice in our country. So it's always been there. And to me, the individuals who are out protesting and advocating for change um, from the black community really to me are exemplars of what it means to have spiritual fortitude. That a community coming together against great odds, against difficult situations, but still finding ways to do good and to care for others. And another kind of connecting theme that I'm hearing as, as you're sharing is another theme in your book around experiencing suffering mm -hmm. and how that kind of plays into spiritual fortitude, resilience. Um, another kind of a quote that coming from your book, you, you talk about letting suffering wash over you. Mm -hmm. um, to experience it and not necessarily resist it. Um, and I can, I mean, one thing that we can say about the history of white supremacy throughout the world and, and racism is that there's been intense suffering that has been experienced throughout many generations. Um, how, how does that play in like the the principle of, of not necessarily running away from suffering or denying it, but to, to experience it and, and what to do with that. How, how would, what advice would you have on that in particular? Well, I, when I, I don't think I have to look much further than just um, the typical news stories or even just you know, my own social media feeds to see examples, especially within uh, the evangelical community, and particularly the white evangelical community, of oftentimes running away from suffering or running away from there being problems sometimes uh, in our communities. So I, I've just been really horrified by the number of uh, white Christians that I've seen say things about systematic injustice not existing or saying that, you know, what about us, that sort of thing. And I think it really shows a sense of self-centeredness and just a lack of awareness of the broader systems at play. And so I think that right now, the white, especially white evangelicals, really need to lament for our sins and the way that we've contributed and to really recognize the privilege that we have and how that oppresses others in our communities. And then in terms of that, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Thanks. Oh, I, I was just going to say, and then the, the suffering part, you know, I, I think that, you know, as we listen to Black voices, that we have so much that we can learn and that we need to humble ourselves to hear what they're sharing and to repent for the sins that we've done. That's right. It's the, I really appreciate what you share about really kind of the first step is just to is to lament and to um, recognize the part that white people have played in systems of oppression over the centuries and um, and recognizing how you know generationally 
that has resulted in inequality and policies also that have contributed to systems of inequality. Um, and so that I appreciate that suffering is not something that can be avoided and not something that can be uh, denied, but it's something that must be entered into. And even if it's not the suffering of myself under, you know, systematic oppression or my family or my ancestors, but entering into the suffering of others and listening to others as they express their suffering as a part of stepping into solidarity uh, seems like an important step as well. Um, and another principle that, that comes out in your book as well is spiritual surrender mm-hmm. and kind of how that plays into spiritual fortitude. Um, and something that you wrote in your book here as well is that, um, you know, learning to trust God regardless of the outcome. Um, and I appreciate this. I could choose to be confident in God, even when I could not predict the outcome of my struggle. And I think of how that plays into many people who are joining in perhaps for the first time in struggles for justice and struggles for uh, equality and for acknowledging and tearing down systems that are oppressing others. Um, that, that this is a marathon and not necessarily a sprint and that the outcomes aren't always clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of choosing to surrender and trust, even in the midst of activism, uh, seems to be an important kind of spiritual uh, practice. What would you say kind of about some of those themes with, you know, activism as well as spiritual surrender? How do those things go together in your experience? You know, in in the book, I I was focusing on what it meant to personally surrender. You know, in my case, it was being, um, you know, facing, you know, stage four cancer at the age of 35. But I think spiritual surrender does also play out in a larger systematic place. You know, so around activism, for example, that I think spiritual surrender helps us to understand what we can and what we can't control. And that you know, I used to view spiritual surrender as kind of like um, uh, the country, was it uh, Carrie Underwood? You know, it's got the song, you know, Jesus take the wheel, right? Well, that's kind of the view of spiritual surrender that I had, that when things got rough, that, you know, we, we just kind of threw up our hands and prayed and didn't do anything else. And so I saw spiritual surrender as being a very passive experience. But when I had this very kind of deep, moment um, of where I gave, you know, my, uh, my surrender to God about my health and what was going to happen next, realized that that was actually an active response, that it wasn't passive, it was an actful and willful response. And that, you know, when we look throughout scripture, we see, you know, Christians being called to pray, but also that our prayer should call us to act. And so I think as Christians, as we think about what's happening around us and about activism, um, that we need to make sure that we're praying, but that we're also acting and doing what we can. You know, we're not all, you know, all of us have a different role to play. And I think some of that even at times is even like how each of us are made that, you know, God's given us all different gifts and talents and we need to respond as the full body of Christ. 
Yes, thank you. That's that's an important call, I think, for us. Um, so I want to shift the conversation now to some tools potentially for growing in this type of awareness of faith and resilience or faith and spiritual fortitude. You mentioned a scale that you know you recently uh, been working on and even published uh, and, and recently. Um, are there any other kind of tools or scales that are available that uh, would might be helpful for people even, even kind of doing a gut check for themselves and their own mental health, but as well as, um, you know, if they're working in communities and wanting to get to that level of how a community is, is coping and dealing with the struggles they're facing. Yeah, you know, so there's been a, a number that we've worked on over the last handful of years. So I just mentioned the spiritual fortitude scale. We've also developed um, a scale of organizational, organizational cultural humility. And so uh, some of my colleagues have done a lot of work looking at individual humility and what that looks like. And we were able to develop and validate a scale at the organizational level. And one of the things that was really interesting was we've seen that it helps to decrease um, kind of like small issues that can snowball into major risk for an organization. And another scale that we've developed is um, right now we're working on a, on a new version of hope that doesn't just look at uh, kind of general hope, but is there any difference with more of a theistic view of hope? And how might that be different? You know, so I think about like Henry Nowen when he compares, you know, talking about optimism and hope and, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, almost like a small H hope to a large scale hope uh, or capital H hope. We've also developed a scale on attitudes toward God. And it's a brief scale. It has both a religious comfort and religious strain subscales that we've found to be connected with overall um, outcomes. And then our latest uh, scale that just came out is looking at resource loss being applied to conflict zones. And so we ended up norming that in Eastern Congo and taking Hobful's idea and theory of conservation of resource loss, which you know, I sometimes joke uh, to friends that I'm pretty much, I feel like most of my research is a bit like the Seinfeld of the research world, that what we're doing oftentimes isn't necessarily groundbreaking. It's just not been done and it's pretty common sense. And you know, we just happen to be the ones that have kind of come along and studied it first. But with that theory from Hobful, you know, he would suggest that the more resources that we lose, you know, again, it's not rocket science, probably the more you're gonna struggle over time. But one of the things that we did recently was to adapt that. So, you know, really digging into what that would look like normed in a different setting. Okay. And what the, the hope scale that you mentioned earlier really reminds me of a little bit is the brief ARCOPE scale, which was a scale I actually got exposed to from uh, one of your, your colleagues, uh, Dr. Laura Shannonhouse. Uh, where, you know, people respond to whether they, you know, how they're coping with a particular situation and what thoughts uh, they've had about, you know, God's role in that suffering and their experience or how they've engaged God in that suffering. And, you know, it could either be kind of on one side where it's a bit more comforting and, you know, God is, is with me or helping me in this 
uh, or more punitive in the sense that, you know, God is uh, punishing me. Um, and that, so how would you kind of differentiate the, the hope scale with the brief arc hope and, and kind of where do you see those scales being useful? Yeah, I, I think the arc hope tends to be more focused on coping behaviors or coping attitudes where the hope scale that we're currently developing focuses more on kind of our worldview and more on the belief side of things. So, and the ARCOPE does get at that a little bit, but what we're trying to do is to really tease that out in more depth. And, you know, we did a study with the ARCOPE in a number of different studies that we've done. One of the ones that really kind of jumped out to me was one that we did after Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines. And we ended up working with NGO workers who'd been there for about six months. And what we found was that individuals that had higher levels of positive religious coping, so kind of like what you said, they were more likely to find comfort in their faith, they tended to uh, be protected somewhat against burnout-related stressors, whereas those that had a more negative uh, levels of religious coping had pretty significant high levels of um, burnout. Right. Okay. And do you see some of these skills also useful in context of maybe like chronic poverty or chronic suffering where there's, you know, sort of been long-term or generational uh, suffering in that sense uh, in kind of in contrast to more disaster related contexts? Oh, absolutely. And um, excuse me, there's definitely been some research done with the ARCOPE in longer kind of development settings and have found that especially negative religious coping tends to be a high predictor of more overall negative emotional struggles. Right, okay. So one of the things that, that kind of has come out to me as the theme in our conversation is that kind of underneath a lot of these different topics of spiritual surrender, um, allowing suffering to wash over you, spiritual fortitude, uh, religious coping or, or you know, ways of coping with, with struggle. What seems to kind of be a foundational truth underneath a lot of this is trusting in the love of God and that the love of God is, is unconditional and is, is with us and over us. Um, yeah, do you, would you have anything to say kind of about that process of really believing that and regardless of what's going on around us or what, how people think about us or what struggle or circumstances that might, we might be facing? Um, could you talk maybe a little bit about that as we, as we draw this conversation to a close? Sure. You know, one of the things that we've seen is kind of a constant <clears throat> across a number of our other studies that we've done over the years is just the powerful role that perceived positive spiritual support plays in helping to not only improve a person's overall emotional and physical well-being, but also their spiritual well-being and specifically their view of God. So we've seen this in studies that we've done in international conflict zones. We've done this, repeated it in mass shootings. We've done this in a number of different natural disasters where in all of those different situations, 
that individuals who felt like they were being positively supported by others from their faith community, or even if they weren't a part of a faith community, but received support from a faith community, that they were much more likely to actually view God more positively and as more loving. And I think that's really important because, you know, I come out of the psychology uh, space for research, which tends to, unfortunately, tends to be much more individualistic. And I think really misses something because of that view. So one of the things that I appreciate about the spiritual support piece is that it helps us see that our experience, it's not just about us. It's about our communities and the types of communities and systems that we live in that are so important to predicting resilience. And so I think, you know, I'm a huge proponent of evidence-based practices and interventions, but I also want to make sure that we remember that even on the mental health interventions, that the majority of positive outcomes comes from that human interaction from person to person. And so whenever I feel at a loss of how to help, I'm always drawn back to some of the church writings on ministry of presence and have just learned, you know, like for instance, even go back to the old Testament and look at the story of Job that, uh, you know, even his friends got it right at first. You know, it wasn't until they opened their mouths that Job, you know, cursed that they came to help. And so I think sometimes as Christians, we would uh, be well to remember that, that it's not about having the right words, but it's much more about being present and that our being present will say more and speak more deeply than anything we could ever say. Well. Wow. Thank you, uh, Jamie, for sharing that. I think that gives us a lot to think through and pray through as we as we show up to our lives in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of anti-racist struggle, and um, in the midst of many other challenges and responsibilities we have in front of us. I think you've given us a lot of I would say like a well of resources to, to really draw from. And, you know, whether we're in a season of, of drought and a season of plenty, you know, we can draw from that, from that well. So thank you so much for that. Um, in the show notes below, we're going to have links to, to many of the resources we talked about in this podcast, including um, just the link to the Humanitarian Disaster Institute, if you want to learn more, as well as, uh, the website for the book, A Walking Disaster, if you'd like to, to read that as well. So thank you so much, Dr. Adnan, for sharing with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I just wanted to also share a couple of other resources that may be helpful before I go. One is spiritualfirstaidhub.com. And so there you'll find a lot of our spiritual and emotional care resources. And also today, since we focused on addressing some um, race issues and the role of the church, wanted to let others know that you can also go to another website that we created with the National Association of Evangelicals called reopeningthechurch.com. And there you'll find a webinar that we recently did looking at race, the church, and crisis response during COVID-19. And we also have a new manual on the same topic that will be coming out that you can download for free there. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you to everyone else for, for tuning in today. Make sure you subscribe if you haven't already or email us at ARA at accordnetwork.org or connect with us on LinkedIn to send us ideas of who we should talk to next or any other suggestions you have um, as you would like us to 
unpack on this podcast. So until next time, thanks again for coming.